In the last segment of this week's episode of Unorthodox, we interviewed Dan Savage, who unsurprisingly brings up explicit language and explicit sexual references. If you're not comfortable with that, skip past that interview. Shalom! Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet in which we talk about the news of the Jews. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and as ever, I'm joined by my Tablet colleagues, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello, Stephanie. And live from the studios on Cape Cod, Liel Leibowitz. Hello, hello. Hello. How is it on the Cape? Fantastic as ever. Are you in the sun right now? Uh, I am in the beautiful studio in WOMR, Provincetown. Oh, thanks, Provincetown. 92.1 FM on your local dial if you're lucky enough to be here. <laughs> and probably streaming online. Correct. Later in the show, we'll be talking with comedy critic Jason Zinneman, who to my knowledge may be the only paid comedy critic in the country. He's the first, Times' first comedy critic. But like, has anyone else picked up on that trend? Nobody. We'll ask him that. And our guest Gentile of the Week will be essayist, sex advice columnist, podcaster, and general mensch Dan Savage. Jewish year 5775 is winding down and some very strange news of the Jews. It feels like we need some Kabbalah just to interpret how weird things have gotten. J Street U, the campus branch of the liberal pro-Israel lobbying group J Street, has elected as its next student president Amna Faruqi, a Muslim American. She's a student at the University of Maryland, and she says she, quote, fell in love with Zionism in an Israeli study class at school. So welcome to the pro-Israel fight, Amna. If it weren't for the fact that Muslims don't drink, we would buy you a stiff drink. Members of an Israeli youth soccer team suffered food poisoning at a hotel in Bulgaria. They suspect that they were poisoned by Bulgarians after they were caught singing Hebrew songs at their Friday night dinner. The team is asking the Bulgarian Soccer Federation to investigate. Yishai Schlissel, the crazy man who stabbed six people at the Jerusalem Gay Pride Parade, has been charged with murder. In very late-breaking news, Jewish actor Dave Franco got engaged to fellow member of the tribe Alison Brie. Trudy from Mad Men. Is that how she's? It's Alison Brie? Yes. Alison Brie. Mazel tov. Mazel tov. And in my favorite story of the past week, Israeli Army Radio reported that a dolphin armed with spying equipment, including cameras, was captured by the Hamas Navy off the Gaza coast. Now, apparently, and Liel's going to let us know as an Israeli Army veteran, the Israeli Navy maintains a fleet of what's called dolphin-class submarines. But according to Israeli Army Radio, Hamas claimed this was an actual mammal, the dolphin, not a boat. Right. In the past, Egypt has accused Israel of sending spy sharks into Egyptian waters. In 2011, rumors spread in Saudi Arabia that a captured griffin vulture was an Israeli spy bird. And a vulture found in the Sudan in 2012 had been tagged by Israeli zoologists with one of those leg tags, which the Sudanese thought were cameras. Now, Liel, you were in the Israeli army. I believe you were even a spokesman for it. Is that right? That is correct. So does Israel use spy animals? some of these fighting mammals. You're right, we do have dolphin class submarines. What is far less known except to, you know, the intelligence of Hamas is that we also have submarine class dolphins. <laughs> uh, you know, they're very special animals that have many capabilities. They they could kill you, uh, you know, with the with blink of a snout. They're they're very well trained. Yeah. I I feel like that was a non-denial denial. Do you is there any chance this dolphin was spying for the Israeli army? Um you know, I'd kind of like to think so, because the Israeli army that I knew was barely capable of getting the submarine in the water. They were barely, if they were well, capable the of training an actual in the water, so you're dolphin. Fine. My yeah, favorite I mean, Wikipedia that's... page is the Wikipedia page about animals that have believed to have been spying for Israel. I mean, there's a huge list of things that, like, anytime anyone sees an animal, they're like, is that an Israeli falcon? Like, or what? It's and just... every time an Israeli zoo all just tags a bird, it lands somewhere and gets accused of being a spy bird, apparently, because the tag is encoded, they think is encoded with secret Israeli chips. But 
Leo, you're denying that this is a project you worked on in the army. I am neither confirming nor denying. <laughs> I'm keeping the uh, the ambiguity that we like to keep in cases such as this one. I'm my vote is for cats, cat spies. C- cat spies are horrible ideas. They're, they're we tried that in the army. They're they're extremely disloyal. <laughs> but on to some more important topics. Goldie Steinberg, believed to be the sixth oldest person in the world and the oldest Jew died this past week in Long Beach at the age of 114, leaving open the question of who the world's oldest Jew is now, which was nowhere in any of the reports. (laughs) I just think it's so funny. Like, our society as a whole really doesn't care about the elderly, it seems, except when they're the oldest people. So, like, if you're on the top 10 oldest people, you're fine. But other than that, like, we won't really pay attention to you. It's kind of If you're just, like, 83 and pooping your pants, you're a disgrace. Yeah, it's like, talk to you when you're 114. Oh, my God. What I mean, why this fascination with oldest Jew in the world? It seems like almost a caricature of the Jew story, which is, oh, my God, a Jewish baseball player. Oh, my God, a a Jewish dolphin spy. Why do people care? But I think for Goldie, she was born in 1900. I mean, if you think about Jewish history since 1900, having someone who was there, you know, she's not chronicling it, but she's experiencing it in some sense. And so I think that Jews especially really, really love that. This idea that she's, you know, she was alive for all this, you know, good and bad in Jewish history. Yeah. I mean, she remembers she could she could, in theory, remember the Balfour Declaration. Right. She could remember when Israel was just a gleam in a bunch of, uh, you know, stern gang people's eyes. Right. I mean, she was a survivor of when she was three years old, a a pogrom in her town of Kishinev in Moldova. Yeah. And it's like, what? Like she could be your grandma and she could have survived a pogrom like that is crazy. That is crazy. After a two-month hunger strike, Israel released Mohammed Alan, but not before he suffered what may have been irreversible brain damage. Leo, you have some expertise in this story. First of all, do you want to explain what was going on? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about hunger striking, since we actually have a hunger striker on the tablet team on this podcast right now. It's great, by the way, that this is radio, because if anyone saw me <laughs> and he believed that I've ever went on a hunger strike would be completely dubious. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the, the gentleman in question, uh, a, a young fellow by the name of Muhammad Alan, uh, was arrested in 2006 for trying to convince uh, one of his buddies to go up and become a suicide bomber and blow women and babies. Uh, and he was in prison for three years which is what you get in this country for being black and in possession of a dime bag of weed. And then he was released and, of course, came right back to, uh, to his old tricks and uh, was arrested by Israel again, I believe, in November of last year. Uh, he was held on, on the basis of what is known uh, kind of lyrically, I think, as the, an administrative arrest, which means that in case of uh, extreme security-related uh, suspicions, they could hold you for, I believe, up to six months, three, and then another three without uh, without trial. This is, by the way, the exact same uh, provenance being used right now against the uh, the hardcore uh, right-wing Jews who, who are believed to have you know burned the Palestinian baby and his family last month. Um, so the gentleman in prison goes on hunger strike. Now, if this was uh, the good old United States of America, if you were in Guantanamo, uh, within about three hours, he would face a force feeding tube of Cool Ranch Doritos. Uh, but this is being Israel. A true nightmare. Everyone, yeah, everyone's like, oh my God, he's not eating. I mean, imagine a nation of Jewish mothers like, he's not eating. This is the worst <laughs> thing ever. And so they made him a deal. You know, would you kindly please leave the country for four years and there'll basically be a paid vacation and he'll come back and everything will be forgiven? And he said, no, I, I want to make, make this into a show. And he went into hunger strike for 64 days. 
uh, which is much, much longer than I ever lasted. So first of all, I guess there are two questions. The first is whether Israel did the right thing in, in letting him, in not releasing him sooner, in letting him persist in his hunger strike to the point where apparently his health was irreversibly damaged. If they were going to release him anyway, why not release him on day three and, you know, let him get back to fighting trim? Uh, and then the second question is, uh, what exactly is a hunger strike like? But let's, I mean, let's take the first one first. Um the first one is, you know, the first one is easy. He was not arrested, you know, just to kind of harass him and, and mess with him. He was arrested because there were very concrete suspicions. There were concrete, I mean, the suspicions were concrete because this is a person who tried to orchestrate a suicide bombing not that long ago. So it's not just like, oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, you're hungry. You should probably go back and have some hummus with your family. Uh, and so I think Israel was trying to negotiate this, like many things that Israel does. Uh, I think it was being... Uh, unfairly criticized in this case, and I think it was being, you know, overly uh, permissive and considerate. Because again, uh, there are nations in the world, and we're proud to live in one that would not have waited uh, two seconds before they would have stuck the tube right in him. That's that's the, uh, the the first question. The second question is much more interesting. A hunger strike is kind of uh, it comes in three stages. Wait, we the have first to back stage, up. So you once I, I went on one. I'm I'm one of those excitable young men, uh, you know, to whom you just have to suggest a bad idea, and I'll be like, oh, I totally want to do that. You want to jump off a plane? I I totally want to do that. So at some point when I was in college, someone suggested that um, the fact that Israeli tuition had gone way up and therefore excluded many, many, many of the nation's uh, uh, poorest students uh, and made it impossible for many of them to go to university was unfair and therefore we needed to do something the thing to do for reasons that elude me now this was 15 years ago uh, the thing to do seemed to have been a, a hunger strike um, and so hunger strikes really have three parts wait the so first part, let's just be clear you said yes <laughs> oh, of course i said yes i'm an idiot i mean that's it goes without saying and so three parts to this thing uh you're hungry for the first 24 hours, like you have never been hungry before in your life. You know these cartoons where you look at a fellow human being and you imagine to be like a big walking, you know, leg of lamb? <laughs> That's what it's like. It's everything reminds you of food and you're insanely ravenous. Then you wake up on, you know, 24 hours into it and there's this sort of blissful state in which everything is peace. You're not hungry. You're not thirsty. You're not tired. You feel kind of like weirdly clean. You and sound radiant. like those people like talking about juice cleanses. Stephanie, <laughs> by it day is the four, world's you're just glowing. Greatest freaking juice cleanse combined with like transcendental meditation, yoga, and, and the like best enema you've spinning. ever had. It, it's yeah, it's 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 orgasmic. I mean, it's really there is nothing. So how to long did you last? This. Just fantastic. Then, oh, how much uh, weight did I lose? No, how how many days did you last? Uh, 13. So what were you, what was it like at the end? Cause I mean, well, I can't even it. imagine so 60 days by, by day, by day, like 10 or 11, <laughs> you enter stage three that just, you know, gets worse and worse and worse, which is basically the stage in which <laughs> your body begins to shut down. And then you're, you're sort of not feeling very well because you're not really <laughs> feeling because your brain is just not working anymore. Because your this urine guy, has turned purple. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, this guy was on for 64 days. Literally by day 11, I was sort of looking into you and just, hi, I, I can't really see or smell, but I'm, you know, sitting here because I have no energy whatsoever to move. Uh, it's it's a, an extreme, extreme thing. For, so for seven days, results? it's great. Did we get results? Yeah. Uh, uh, Sarah Netanyahu bought us pizzas. Did you break for the pizzas? I was in the hospital. I got hospitalized the evening before that. I lasted until almost the very end. 
So what's going to happen now? I mean, after there's so much, so much publicity and, you know, he's suffering brain injury, um, potentially irreversible. Um, well, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if it was the United States, we sort of know what we'd be seeing. But um, what, what, what happens next? I think nothing. Uh, I think that the publicity uh, just piles up with the, you know, dolphin-related publicity and other publicity that Israel gets or doesn't get for what it does or doesn't do. I'll say uh, this, so- though. I'll say this, though, which is that a lot of people have long said that the kind of activism that's going to work for Palestinians who want to bring attention to what they see as human rights abuses or violations of international law in Gaza in particular, is not going to be boycotts, divestment, sanctions, and it's certainly not going to be terrorism. It's going to be uh, the kind of sort of self-abnegating civil disobedience in the Gandhi, Martin Luther King vein that includes hunger strikes, right? It's going to be people peacefully sitting there refusing to eat. I completely agree. Look, I've had the opportunity to participate in a host of uh, Palestinian and to a certain extent, you know, joint Palestinian-Israeli demonstrations in uh, a little village called Bilin. Uh, in in the West Bank, which were basically uh, just, uh, for the most part, occasions of you know peaceful marching uh, towards uh, the Israeli soldiers, uh, I think those have been tremendously effective, precisely because they were they were peaceful, they were nonviolent, and and they really heightened uh, the the contradictions of the situation. Uh, it, it is one of my greatest laments that the Palestinian civil society in general does not. Uh, uphold this tactic more frequently. I mean, in this case, again, let us remember that this is a person accused of trying to recruit a suicide bombing. This is not a Gandhi. Uh, but in in general, yes, I would like to see it used more frequently and more successfully. All right, thanks. I confess that I almost didn't want to talk about this because even hearing about a hunger strike makes me hungry and scared and sad. But it's uh, it was a remarkable story coming out of uh, Israel this past week. So glad to have your own reminiscences, Leo. <laughs> Our first guest, our Jewish guest, is the guy who has the best job in the world, Jason Zinneman. He's the comedy critic for The New York Times. He's also working on a book about the history of The David Letterman Show. Uh, Yeah, David Letterman. Letterman. Uh, Jason, welcome. Great to be here. So I have one question for you, which is, what are your qualifications to be a comedy critic? (laughs) None. None. Zero. The, uh, I mean, I think there's no school, uh, you know, there's no comedy critic school. I mean, I, that's sort of my general uh, feeling about, uh, you know, criticism, uh, any kind of criticism, that, they're, that you know, go, going to journalism school is not going to make it more likely that you'll get a job as a theater critic or a film critic at, you know, the Washington Post. Um, and it's particularly true for my job because it, it didn't exist before me. And it barely exists anywhere else in the country. I mean, there's no the New York Times. I mean, this is sort of a institutional error it's made for years is that it would cover the most obscure off Broadway show, every opera that you know came out, the uh, dance. And it didn't cover, you know, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> I mean, we didn't cover Louis. I was the first person to write a review of Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up comedy, which was like two or three years ago. I mean, and you know, Jerry Seinfeld before he had a television show was a major Actually star. Actually, was a stand-up comic. Was right. a major stand. Was a major star. Louis C.K. is a major star before he had a TV show. In that, but for some reason, I mean, I know, I know why, but for for uh, for uh, institutional reasons, we didn't cover it critically. Anyway, so I I was lucky enough to start this new job. There's no track record for it. I, I kind of invented the conventions of it as I went along. So what does a week look like for you? Are you going to comedy shows every night? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when I'm doing my job right, I should be. I, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm going to comedy shows every night, but the way I designed my job uh, was that it wasn't going to only be clubs. It would it would cover. I've I've written about TV. I've written about Broadway. I've written about film. But the bread and butter is, and I think where I can be of some use. Uh, is uh, live stand-up and improv because, you know, we have a TV critic. We have a, you know, obviously we have a theater critic. All that. Jason, I, I want to ask you a, a hostile question. Ah, uh, great. It's, it's only hostile because I could not be more jealous of the amazing job that you have. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, but here it goes. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried. I'm very worried. <laughs> um, so here's my question. You know, right. it seems to me that it used to be, you know, the 60s, the 70s, there were people doing comedy. And the reason they were doing comedy is for the usual reasons, you know, people have been doing comedy, which is basically, you know, to beat away the pain, to make observations, to kind of, you know, uh, sing, sing all the, the woes of society in a way that would make people laugh and listen. And then it seems that like a whole generation, sometime in the 80s and 90s, a whole generation of comedy nerds uh, came into play. People like Judd Apatow, who just wrote this, what I think is, is a really great book. I'd like to hear your opinion about it. And all of a sudden, the, the comedy seemed like it was starting to get directed by the comedy nerds. In other words, it was like a meta comedy. It was like people who grew up in conventions and forcing the conventions mm -hmm. and... and changing the game in that way it seemed you know kind of like a step removed do, do you think that's a fair analysis and, and are you part of that problem that's a, that's a hostile question you got to try harder that's <laughs> that's a softball come on yeah uh, i think you put your i i disagree with some stuff that you said there but i think you put your finger on a, a major development which um i i which is the sort of rise of the comedy nerd uh and you know to take uh, there's a I, I think um, and uh, you know you're you're suggesting that there's this it's changed the substance of comedy it's become more meta it's become more insidery um, and I think that's uh, all true to some degree I think a key turning point would be um, the alternative comedy scene of the early '90s um, and you know I think David Letterman actually had a big uh, was sort of had a big uh, impact on that as well. Um, and I think that also because of technology, because of podcasts, um, because of the Internet having sites dedicated to comedy, that comedy nerds have become like music nerds. They've, they've created their own media. They, um, you know, for, for instance, in the 70s or the 80s, nobody could name, nobody in the general public could name a Saturday Night Live writer. Um, that was just, you know, you didn't know who Al Franken was. I mean, now you knew about what was when he was a senator, but you had no, that he wasn't, there was no star to Al Franken, right? You knew who he was wrote for. No one knew who Michael O'Donohue was, even though these are critical figures in the history of Saturday Night Live, vastly more important than most of the people you see on the show. Today, people know who are writing these things. People know John Mulaney is the guy who wrote Stefan and is as important as Bill Hader is. Uh, and that is a function of the rise of the comedy nerd. Um, but I think also I think to, I don't see the development as um, as as so negative as you do um, because I think that the you know it, our whole culture has become so fragmented that there's all kinds of comedy out there. there if you want to have you know very mainstream comedy that uh, begins with premises that everyone can understand, it's still there. Uh, and if you want to have kind of weirder, more I think now there's more room for kind of weirder more surreal, more abstract comedy that isn't about the joke than there ever has been. And I think that's good. I think that makes us more diversity, aesthetic diversity in the, in the scene. Rock on. <laughs> Stephanie, you got anything else for him? I want to talk to you about Amy Schumer. 
I feel like she's not fully universally accepted. She's still sort of like she had her she had train wreck and she's sort of on her way. I mean, she has an HBO special, a stand up special coming up. Is that the point at which she sort of hits, you know, peak saturation? I think that's the most I think she's there now. I mean, I think I, I said in The Times, I think she has, uh, um, you know, she is you know, there, there's sort of a, I have a kind of a theory on on kind of the big comedian where, uh, you know, at, at every year there's sort of one comedian who's sort of the dominant force. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with somebody who's just the funniest or the most successful. Like I think Louis for the last couple of years has clearly been the dominant force. And there's people who are more popular, you know, who have a bigger audiences than Louis. But because... Like Cat Williams is absurdly popular. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Right? Kevin Hart is clearly, I mean, more, there are all sorts of people who are big. Uh, but Louis, because, for a variety of different reasons having to do with uh, you know, the, the technology, how, how he released the stuff, the fact that he... Um, you know, he sort of tapped the zeitgeist with his show. All these reasons he became the. And then you had, you had a moment where Dane Cook was the was that guy. You had moments where you know Robin Williams and Steve Martin, and they kind of shifted the whole scene, and people started imitating these people. You know, Seinfeld. You know, he completely changed the way stand up. Stephen Wright was had a moment you could argue all those. Right now, I think is Amy Schumer's moment, and I think. You know, it may be uncertain, uncertain, in certain places she might not have the respect that she deserves because I think she's one of the things uh, that's distinctive about her and I think which makes her match the moment is how she's good at so many different things. She's a great actress. She, be, you know, she starred in theater and I think what really surprised people about Trainwreck is what a great performance that is. Just, you know, and so she's, she's clearly a fantastic comedian. She's a great actress. She's a, she's a very good writer. And also, you know, she turns out to have, like, really trenchant, interesting political things to say that are, uh, you know, speaking to the moment, uh, and while at the same time, you know, making this, her shows become increasingly sort of feminist. At the same time, you know, holding on to this mass audience. You know, there's a lot of feminist comedians out there, um, but she is, uh, uh, you know, she, that tra- train wreck was a major, major hit. And uh, I think the the next turning point is going to be this HBO special directed by Chris Rock, because that's the moment when people are going to say, OK, she's had a couple of specials. She's fundamentally a stand up right now. And that's the moment we're going to say, okay, now she's in that echelon. And I, I think the, there's an interesting question: Has there ever been a woman who's had this zeitgeist role in the stand-up, stand, female stand-up, not female improv like Tina Fey? Or, and I think the only two examples that you could point to would be Roseanne Barr, which there was a moment probably like late '80s, early '90s, and Ellen DeGeneres. But Ellen, you know, a lot of her zeitgeist appeal was having to do with coming out at the moment, uh, and uh, you know, on the show. So it's really rare. I mean, Sarah that, Silverman didn't get there. You know, that's an interesting question. I would argue she was there artistically and she was doing something new, but she never got that. But she never got as popular as Amy Schumer. And it's an interesting you know, she never had that big movie. She had the stand up part of it. She had the kind of new aesthetic, but she never had the big mainstream breakthrough thing, which I think you need to ha- be this person at the moment. And it's interesting to, to analyze why Schumer got there and Silverman didn't because Silverman had a, had a Comedy Central show, too. Is it because Schumer's blonde? <laughs> no, I'm or, serious. Or because she's funny? Oh. Ouch. Sarah Silverman's funny. As Sarah Silverman is funny. And she's also Jewish. She's so, arguing well. well. Jason, I think she's before, more Jewish, before we go, Before we go yeah. down the uh, the Jewy Jew path, uh, uh, the subtext of a lot of the conversation up until this moment is a lot of these people uh, are Jewish. And a right. lot of the humor that they use is what you know we would call in academic papers uh, and other uninteresting formats uh, Jewish humor. Is, is Are we seeing a change in that? Is, is, is it a dying thing? 
No, I mean that's what I, I I think we're at a great time for Jewish humor. I think we're I think uh, which is a you know an interesting question. Why are we in a great time for Jewish humor? You'd think we're, we'd be in a bad time for Jewish. Right, humor. we're not as oppressed as we used to be. We're not all coming out of this like immigrant culture. We're not like we've lost all the stuff that made the first wave of Jewish humor after the war. All the so, stuff that's funny even before so transformative, and yet. There's still Jews doing comedy. Actually, my question was going to be, is it because we're naturally funnier or because we control the industry? <laughs> I think... Is it an either-or question mark? Can it be I both? have a lot of theories on this question. I think one uh, answer, you know, to quote uh, Tevya, is a tradition. You know, we, we now have this long comedic tradition. Here's, my, here's one of my pet theories. I do think there's, there, there, are thing, there are things that are uh, specific to uh, kind of Jewish culture that, that uh, lend itself to... Uh, us being good at comedy. But I do think that, I was thinking about this recently, that we've had now several generations of Jews who define themselves as cultural Jews, secular Jews who define themselves as cultural Jews. Um, people who don't go to synagogue, who, you know, they, in some ways, you know, their their Judaism has more to do with what they eat and what they consume. And I think a lot of the really great Jewish comedy now, like Difficult People, is Love that show. A fantastic show that I find distinctly Jewish. Yes, right? so Jewish. I don't know if you saw the last that episode. That Yom Kippur episode. Oh, that, I see, that, that Yom Kippur episode I felt was like a mission statement for a certain kind of Jewish humor where this is what happened. It's Billy Eichner is having Yom Kippur with his more religious uh, uh, brother. And this is something that I think secular Jews, they really understand, right? It's like part of what you're saying is that we used to feel like outsiders to uh, the, the Gentile culture. Jewish comedians have been very smart about finding new ways to become outsiders. Larry, Larry David is a genius at it, but in this one, he he's an outsider to his own family, to the, to the religious Jew. Yeah. And so there's a moment when uh, Billy Eichner turns to his brother, he's played by Fred Armisen, and he says, you know, this is the holiest day of your year. He goes, the holiest day of my year is the Golden Globes, right? <laughs> and now, what does that mean? He's defining Judaism by cultural obsession, right? And I th- I think a lot of the new a lot of the new Jewish uh, comedy. Uh, you know, is finding new ways to define Jewish identity. And this one, I mean, there's no doubt, Difficult People is all about what makes them so Jewish and what makes them passionate has to do with show business. And I think, I just wonder that generations of Jews saying like, yeah, I'm very Jewish. I'm very Jewish. Oh, no, I don't go to synagogue. I don't celebrate. I don't do Passover, Yom Kippur. But I, I, I go to Woody Allen movies and I, you know, in my, in my, you know, my intonations and the rhythms of my speech are, are all very Jewish. You know, that there's a big strain of Jewish, of secular Jewish com- comedy right now that, that is working on that. Transparent, too, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, when Tig Notaro showed up, I was like, what is this Gentile woman doing in this family? <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. This was awesome. This has been really, really fun. And now, our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. This week, we welcome Dan Savage. He writes Savage Love, the most widely read sex and romance column in America, possibly the world. Though I figured someone's doing one in China that has a billion state-enforced readers. And he hosts the Savage Lovecast, one of the country's most popular podcasts. He also writes books, is a father and husband, and he once wanted to be a Catholic priest. Isn't that right, Dan? That is correct, briefly. And then I realized I could uh, wear dresses, uh, have a lot of stained glass in my house, and fuck boys without getting ordained. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Liel, you had a question for Dan, right? Yeah, uh, I had a, you know, I'll I'll say the most Jewish thing I've said on this podcast. I don't have a question. I have a comment, uh, which is, you know, (laughs) I moved from Israel. uh, I moved here from Israel about 15 years ago, and, and the Israel that I grew up in was a kind of somewhat traditional state where, you know, like, get a hand job from someone, you'd have to go out for like four months. And then I moved here and literally the first day I arrived, I picked up a newspaper and your column was in it. 
And it was like, if I needed, it was like the Statue of Liberty. If I needed a, you know, an indication that I've arrived at the promised land, it was that there was a voice that talked about, you know, these things in this amazing way. So it, it changed my life and I'm grateful for it. And I, and I was here to facilitate that first date hand job for you. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah, How long after a... you arrived at Ellis Island, Liel, what, did, you, did, you get the, did, did you get on an American schedule of, of second base or Could third base? Could you imagine if we gave anyone who arrived to Ellis Island a hand job, what a better country this would be? It'd be yeah, amazing. Might have kept the Rubios out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and there goes the Republican Florida vote for unorthodox. <laughs> um, Stephanie, what's up? Uh, I guess I just wanted to talk to you. I mean, you've been sort of pretty vocal about the Ashley Madison hack and sort of saying mm-hmm. that what people do in their lives. I mean, it's a web, the, the web, the hack basically revealed the information of users who were using the website to sort of seek adulterous relationships. Um, and you're sort of saying, don't we shouldn't you know, if it's not a, if it's not someone who's made their career, you know, basically defending these ideas of, like, traditional family, which are completely bullshit, um, we shouldn't be outing these people. Not, not just defending traditional family, uh, also attacking other people's families mm-hmm. and trying to enact into law their sort of preferred relationship models and their uh, moral prescriptions. Um, you know, if somebody just publicly was, I'm against, you know, I'm for traditional family values, but they weren't stumping against alternative family values or trying to have their bigotry enshrined into law. I don't think they should be outed necessarily. But a Josh Duggar? Absolutely. I mean, this just seems like it's such hypocrisy. You see someone like Josh Duggar who's like, you know, from this family, this evangelical Christian family, and he's saying like really homophobic things. And then he's on this website and it's like, of course you are. Well, it's always important to add, not just saying homophobic things, saying heterophobic things. This quiverful movement, which is all about weaponizing women's uteruses and women being the possessions of their husbands and fathers is an assault on mainstream heterosexuality and mainstream heterosexual morals and and, and practices. These people want a theocracy and they think they can breed their way to it. And to make that look cute and funny, they can only get away with it because they were Christians. If If this was a Muslim family with 20 kids, and the idea was to get all Muslim families to have 20 kids so one day they can take over uh, the country and force everyone to live by their their sacred text, people would go nuts. Danny, you have a, a, a famous, I'm tempted to say, intimate relationship with, with one of the Republican uh, presidential candidate, uh, uh, Rick Santorum, whose name you've turned <laughs> into quite a popular internet uh, phrase. Do you want to briefly explain what that is before I ask you a, a quick question? Well, Rick Santorum in 2003, uh, in an interview, an infamous interview with the AP, compared gay couples that wish to marry to uh, individuals that rape children and have sex with dogs. And that was a vile and offensive thing to say. And some of my readers uh, had an idea to have a campaign to redefine Rick Santorum's last name uh, into something vile and disgusting, equally vile and disgusting. And readers suggested uh, a bunch of new definitions. I put them in my column. They voted. They picked the winning one. Which, can I say it? <laughs> of course. It's a, uh, the, the winning definition was Santorum, uh, the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. And the most important word in the definition is not frothy, although that's the most evocative, but sometimes. Because if you're doing <laughs> anal sex right, there is no Santorum. So do, do you feel like uh, renaming the definition or redefining the meaning of, uh, say, Trump or Huckabee? <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, everybody's always after me to like redefine Scalia, redefine Alito, <laughs> redefine Coulter. And I don't want to live in a world where I can't have sex without having to rattle off the names of every Republican <laughs> politician or pundit in the country. You know, I'm going to Coulter the Huckabee out of you. I hope there's no Santorum. <laughs> now get down on your hands in Alito and let's do this. It's like a really disturbing Mad Lib. Yeah, it's really horrifying. All right. Well, as is traditional, we invite the non-Jew of the week, the Gentile of the week, to come to us with an ethical or cultural uh, question or dilemma to be solved. What do you have for us, Dan? Well, this uh, you can't help me with this because uh, I needed this advice about 26 years ago. But perhaps there's someone else in this similar circumstance. So I dated a German guy for a year, and he was really great and really hot. And this was in West Berlin, so that's how long ago it was. Uh, and he spoke almost no English, and I spoke almost no German, so there wasn't a lot of communication, just a lot of um, uh, sex. And six months into the relationship, I realized, listening to him talk to somebody else, that he thought I was Jewish. <laughs> you know, I had black hair then. I had, and I still have, a, a kind of a largish nose. I'm circumcised because of the, my generation. Uh, and he was absolutely crushed. <laughs> When I told him that I was Catholic, like him, he was from Bavaria, where everybody's Catholic, would it have been wrong for me to let him continue to think I was Jewish? Because he was deriving a lot of pleasure from that thought. <laughs> Stephanie, what I mean, you... I think that it's like the context is important. Like, what, what, what part of, about you being Jewish was it? It was sort of like a sexual diplomacy thing that he was doing? Like, I think it was a post-Nazi weird fetish transgressive-y thing that he was sleeping with this American Jew. Well, to, to use a Dan Savage term, I think you would have been, you know, GGG, good giving and game. And, and why not? You know, if he wants his, uh, his Holocaust repentant sexual fantasy, which, you know, I assume we all have at one stage or another of our normal upbringing, then that's fine. I just don't think there's any harm or foul in this. I think that if, I mean, you were probably getting off on his Germanness. He probably looked like Dieter from Sprockets. He was from a, a some sort, he was from a Wim Wenders film. And he was getting off on the fact that, you know, you looked kind of Semitic. I don't see the harm. I'm not offended as a Jew if you go on playing Jew there, provided that it's a short-term thing. Like, you guys are in, you're out, within a year you're gone. It'd be weird if it continued into engagement, marriage, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was my follow-up question. Like, if I had let him if I let him think that, how long, you know, if we had wound up staying together, which is a possibility. Well, like the high holidays you know, would have been awkward. Point, yeah, we do, you know, come home to my house for, uh, we call it Christmas, maybe. <laughs> uh, so final question for you. Um, how did it finally come out? Like, how, how did, did you overhear him on the phone talking about Diuda? Uh We were in a bar and he was talking to a friend and talking about me in German with his friend and. He described me as his, uh, I knew what uh, boyfriend was at that point, and he called me his Jew boyfriend. And I, was like, <laughs> I was just like, wait, what? No, I'm Irish Catholic. And he was, uh, which his friends then translated for him, and you could see the look on his face. He was just you really You could crushed. see his, his erection disappearing. What I love about this is how, how little you guys knew each other, right? Like so little conversation. You've been together for six months <laughs> and, he, and he didn't know the most basic facts about your background because you just didn't talk that much. You know, you've never really had a foreign affair until you've had an affair with a German English dictionary in one hand and uh, your lover's junk in the other. And you just kind of go back and forth between them. <laughs> All right. Well, Dad, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again with your pseudo Jewish personality. Happy to do it. Uh, thanks for having me, and good luck with the new podcast. 
Okay, time for our regular prayers of the week. Me, I have an easy one. I dropped my two-year-old daughter on her head yesterday, and I'm just praying that she's okay. The pediatrician says all is fine, but the nervous father in me is just, you know, waiting a couple more days for her to go limp, and I, I really hope it doesn't happen. Liel? I'm, I'm just going to, you know, double down on yours, man. I mean, you can have <laughs> mine this week. Your prayer is that my daughter's okay? My prayer is that Mark's daughter uh, thrives, especially because I want a shidduch for my two-year-old son, so... You guys could hyphenate. You could be the Oppenheimer Leibowitzes. <laughs> <laughs> My prayer is that the quasi makeout captured between Jewish rapper Drake and tennis star Serena Williams will turn out to be more than a makeout and will be a meaningful relationship that we can talk about in perpetuity. By the way, it, Trump's daughter becoming Jewish is one thing, but Serena Williams becoming Jewish but is she going to be, need to become Jewish. She an just, amazing, you know, just amazing. Ride this out. See what happens. We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Be warned, we might read them on the air. You can also send us a voice memo to play on the air. Again, it's unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine, produced by Julie Subrin with expert assistance from Sarah Ivry. Rabbinic supervision this week by Alan Dershowitz and kosher slaughtering by Hyman Krastovsky. Our website is tabletmag.com and our music is by Golem. Get our newsletter with extra links, inside jokes, and lots of Jewish street cred. You can sign up at tabletmag.com and join us next week. Thanks so much. <laughs>